begin my own spiritual journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories, uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah Taala along that journey. Before I started at Rutgers last year, my teacher in Toronto told me his friend taught at a nearby masjid, the New Brunswick Islamic Center. NBIC not only welcomed me with open arms, but that friend happened to be the mosque scholar-in-residence, Dr. Shadi al-Masri, known to many as the founder of Safina Society and one of the hosts of the Safina Society podcast. In this episode, Dr. Shadi talks about how a collection of Hamza Yusuf cassette tapes led him to seek knowledge in Fez and Thareem. Though he gives an important critique of Islamic studies in Western academia, he wrote an incredible dissertation about Imam Haddad's works on Dawah for his PhD from SOAS University of London. Dr. Shadi gives important advice to the average everyday Muslim on seeking the spiritual path, having the courage to speak the truth, and the power of dhikr. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. So our, um, our family is from Egypt, and Egyptians are pretty much middle of the road uh, in everything, uh, considering the fact that they are in the middle of three major continents. So you have Europe to the northwest you have asia to the east like arabia and forward is i guess is asia and then uh even though arabia is not necessarily considered asia but you know technically it is asia and it leads to that part of the world and then you have africa to the south and the north african berbers to the west so egyptians have always been at the center uh, of everything in the sense that people migrated to egypt to uh to live uh, to get sustenance because the um, flooding of the Nile was always something that gave people uh, like a livelihood uh, farming and then there had great cities so merchants were always there so Egyptian culture is something that's always had a little bit of everything which is sometimes good and sometimes bad the bad part of it is that you don't necessarily get a unique culture right but you do get a middle of the road culture that uh, it's not is never really extreme in anything so uh, we grew up in that type of culture that was, I would say, really middle of the road in everything. Um, our family growing up, we didn't really have much dean, wasn't really a thing in the house. Morals was a thing, like manners with your parents and um, alcohol, drugs, of course. No, there's not even a discussion on that. Boys and girls really didn't, there, there was no such thing as, you know, like dating growing up in our house. When I was around 12 or 13, some people started to have classes and there were a lot more Muslims coming to America. So they, that scene started to grow up, uh, to, to grow a little bit. Uh, the scene that we were in prior to that was basically like uh, colleagues, like work colleagues. So my mom's work colleagues, some of them Lebanese Christians, some of them, uh, Iranian Christians. I think there were a couple of Iranian. Uh, not Christian, Iranian Shia. Uh, so there was uh, different groups, but all doctors. That was the main thing, is that they were all doctors. And then my dad has his had his own group of friends. So it was all it was it was it was pretty uh, <clears throat> distant, I would say, from Dean, but not sinful. 
right? Not like into drugs and music and all that stuff. Uh, it wasn't really like that. So around 12, 13, they started to attend to some lessons. And then um, that's when Dean started to, to come into the household. And it was a little bit of a you know shift, I would say, because religious groups are financially diverse, economically diverse, I should say. And so for the first time, we were dealing with people who were um, poor, right? We never dealt with people who were poor. I never thought ever we'd be friends with people who were poor. So that's one thing that Dean did. Other than that, it was a very simple and straightforward childhood. Uh, Alhamdulillah, my parents were married. Uh, They never had a divorce. They were uh, married happily, not uh, really having uh, any drama. There was no drama, Alhamdulillah, in my family. It was a very simple family, only me and my sister. And we lived far from everything else. Even the suburb we lived in was very deep suburbs. So there was no noise ever on the street. There were no kids on the street. We were surrounded by senior citizens. Maybe there were two girls that we carpooled with that were two blocks down. So it was a very solitary, I would say, childhood. The nicest thing about my childhood was that it, we had a really beautiful house. And I now understand the son of the Prophet ﷺ said, when if you're capable, then expand for your, the home of your house or the home for your family. Expand the house. So that's actually a sunnah to have a big home. And one of the great blessings in that or the wisdoms is that if you're happy in your home, you won't go elsewhere. Right. A person won't go uh, won't feel the need to get out. Now, if you go to the city, or not even the city, the hood, I should say. Whenever I we drive through New Brunswick, my kids say to me, why is everyone always outside, right? Everyone's always outside. I said, well, because their houses are so cramped, right? That it's, not, it's not comfortable. So, And also, they don't have air conditioning a lot of times. They need to get out of the house. So for that reason, Allah, uh, the, Allah's Messenger Sallallahu said, expand the homes for your family. And I had that, alhamdulillah, I had a home that was um, very nice and uh, garden and all that stuff. So I actually felt never felt the need to leave the house for that reason. I always enjoyed what I had. And, and families should, they should put everything in the house for their family. So like if people are going to want entertainment, right? A head of household should, if he's capable, if he has the wealth, make his own entertainment center in his house so that his kids don't feel like they have to go elsewhere. Right. And then you just have to negotiate the right time for it. Right. So that's how I grew up, uh, played sports, went to school. And then when I when we came upon uh, the Muslims around age 12, 13 and 14, I chose to, um, you know, befriend them and go to the uh, and the place where I could meet them was a Sunday school. And there we had a very good, good teacher. Who, he was interesting. He was able to keep our attention. This is the biggest thing about him is that uh, his name was Dr. Ibrahim Bukur. And we, he was able to keep our attention. And that's the main thing. And then eventually moved into his home, a halaqa that still goes on to this day every Sunday morning. So uh, that's where I made friends. And it was a very simple life of school. Uh, memorize Quran, which I wasn't really great at. But uh, I, I could have been great at. But there was no structure, right? And then um, it's not like today where you can have a hifs teacher, you know, down the road. I didn't have anything like that. Uh, it was a Sunday school where I met, went to my friends. And it wasn't really a Sunday school. It was, it was in the Sunday school, but it was a halakha of friends, right? Uh, led by one of the dads, which is Dr. Booker, which is one of my friends' dad. And then it was sports, right? My whole life was sports. The only thing, I never watched movies when I grew up. 
I never could stand watching a movie, right? But I uh, I watch sports. So that's that was that was my uh, childhood, and that's what I passed down too. What I want to pass down is a stable Muslim life. And for us, Islam was we weren't loose in Islam. We were pretty serious about the boundaries of Islam, right? And certain boundaries are never crossed. But we weren't extreme in like the law. We didn't. They. I was nothing. Was much was forced upon me, right? My parents never forced anything on me, right? I bought into it because it, I felt that it never really challenged anything that I loved. So I never had a conflict. And uh, I liked it. I liked going to the masjid. And my mother was always happy when I would go to the masjid voluntarily for Jamal. And I wanted to make her happy. So I liked to see her happy. And stories. When I was around 11, 12, I would go to my mom's room at night. And she would tell me stories. I remember she had a big book in Arabic and she would read it and the next day she would tell me a story of Yusuf story of Nuh I love these stories right so I immediately got attached to these prophets right and there was literally no there was no religious fights in there the only religious fights I remember attending was and I enjoyed attending them which was my dad and his friends as we grew up versus the secularists right there were some secular Egyptians and uh, I loved going and having bouts against them because they were they would mock religion, right? And we would still we were sort of in the same social circle, and sometimes they would come to the mosques too, right? And they would try to bring their you know secular ideas to the masjid, and I would see my dad and his friends, you know, fighting and debating them. So I enjoyed those tussles, right? Um, so I knew that there are secularists out there, modernists, whatever you want to call them, and we have nothing to do with them. Not only we have we fight them right we push that back because it's harmful but other than that it was a very simple religion and um, a simple life and that's what i feel works because it works for me that's what i'm able to give stable repetitive okay and it's a blessing young people might feel they don't might not appreciate it and i don't mind that i don't care if they appreciate it in the sense that they recognize this blessing of stability they don't need to, right? Their minds are and hearts will be uh, will grow firm in a stable soil. They don't need to recognize the the one the, the great thing of stability. When they move on, they'll recognize it, right? But they will benefit from it. So it's the same thing with the youth in the masjid here. Same, we have classes once a week, not more, right? Once a week, you attend the class. You respect your parents. You play sports, right? You do go to school. And that's it. You stay away from nonsense. So basically, that's uh, that's how I grew up. It was stable, so stable that it was boring. It could get boring, right? Every single day and every single week was a repetition of the previous week. But that's what actually allows you that predictability. It allows you to think outside the box. Now, if you look at economics, once a person does not have a stable monthly salary, they're IQ, ambition, vision, dreams, they all go downhill. Why? All he's thinking about is how am I going to eat next week, right? Whereas for me, not only the months were, the years were the same too. Same life, same way of living. And uh, uh, I'd watch a couple, if there was a Rangers game at night, I'd watch that with my dad. And I felt that that was a great bonding. Like that's how, that's what I do with my dad. We watch the games, all right? So, uh, 
all of that that's how I basically grew up and having that stability allowed me to think outside the box and my parents my dad was an outside the box type of person he didn't want some repetitive thing and he used to always say we have wealth right so you just don't repeat the same thing they got well they they had comfort by doing the predictable thing medicine and 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 engineering so my dad was a chemist my mom was a physician right that's the predictable route to wealth it's a guaranteed route so he said he would say we attain that now let's do something beyond that so he actually promoted and allowed for me to uh study the liberal arts go into liberal arts which is basically an unpredictable field and he allowed me to travel right he said we have wealth let him travel go out see the world whereas he was just looking for a better life right from egypt to america so that's basically uh, what happened and teenage years late teenage years that's when i started to really fixate upon what i wanted to do so then how did islam become the focus of your life so when I was um, 12, 13, and 14, my parents were always happy when I would go choose willingly to go to the masjid or to go to be with my Muslim friends. And I like to make them happy. As every child, by his nature, if his parents are good to him, right, the child wants to make his parents happy. And, and, and many young parents, I see, they, they don't understand the meaning of happiness. They think that that means you have to please them all the time. It's not the case. Right? You just have to be fair. You have to be fair. So certain things are wrong, they need to be called out as wrong. And certain things are good, they should be called out as good. And there should be mercy and there should be flexibility. But the idea that the kids should never ever feel that they're in trouble or they're upset and never be told or scolded is not in that pattern. So that's a mistake that they're making, these, these parents. You have to be fair and generous. But you can be strict Right and severe in some cases. You know, once every three years, there could be something severe, but that protects him from other mistakes in the future. So I, I like to make them happy. That was the first thing. Second thing was that there were some scholars, and there was a big scholar from Egypt, had basically retired from Egypt and was in America. And I felt that he had like an aura around him, and he was always reciting Quran and saying, uh, you know, some dua. And I felt, you know, this is what I want to do when I grow up. And really from the age of 13, 12, I knew eventually that's where I'm going to go. And it was not just him. It was that there were some young people, they were maybe in college at the time, that were in the friend circle that I looked up to. And they were memorizing Quran, going to Islamic events. One of them went to Syria to study. One of them memorized Surah Al-Baqarah, right? And today they're in the community today. One of them is a surgeon. The other of them is a, is a computer guy. But I looked up to these people and my parents encouraged me to look up to these people. I love these guys. And they lived an hour away. So I, or 45 to an hour away. Because we were deep uh, by the Jersey Shore where there was no man's land. It was all Italians, senior citizens, right? Uh, that's Tom, That was Tom's River. Italians and senior citizens. That was it. So maybe one or two Pakistani families and us. So by looking, uh, by not seeing them all the time, the few times I did get to see them was almost like, you know, it, there was a mystique about it. And I really looked up to them and I wanted to be like them. And they were doing Dean all the time. They were into the Dean. And there was at that time 
in the, uh, up here in New Brunswick, there was activity. There was Imam Zaychek had, had activity, right? Other people had activity, right? Or they kicked off the activity and the next generation took it on. So I would look up to that activity and wish to be part of it. And having been down south in Tom's River, I, I wasn't part of it. I could just see glimpses of it. So all of that was came together and when I was about 12, 13, and I knew in the future, that's what I'm going to do. It was just a fuzzy picture, but that's what I'm going to do. Then I had some, you know, detours, you know, uh, as youth do all the time. And, uh, but that idea never died out. Then when I was 17 and I came to Rutgers, having moved away from home, my routine was destabilized. Everything was destabilized. My little routine that I had going for years was destabilized. My friends group was now sort of mixed up with a new group of friends, right? And some of these people didn't really have a healthy vision of Islam. Like one thing I had was I never ever imagined anyone would disrespect the deen, nor take it lightly. And I came upon Muslims who had an opposite experience of me. They went to Islamic schools. They had full Muslim communities. They would see each other all the time. And their primary uh, friends group was the Muslim group, right? And what they were interested in was like non-Muslim culture, like whatever music group. For me, it was the opposite. I was into public, in public school. That was what I was immersed in, right? That was my origin. My first friends were from there. And I was trying to right, uh, be with Muslims. So I had the opposite. And seeing that was actually very disturbing. Seeing those types of kids, it was very disturbing. Like they wouldn't respect, you know, they could make a joke about a sheikh. They could make a joke about Hibd of Quran. They could make jokes about deen. And that to me was really unsettling. So a lot of things got disturbed all at once. And whenever that happens, maybe it's the wisdom from Allah to make you sort of think and ponder. So after my first semester... Uh, being at Rutgers, which was like being in a playground with all your friends. You have your license for the first time. There's no curfews, right? Um, driving around and doing what you want. So I felt myself like disturbed by what I was seeing, destabilized, and at the same time, not really liking the path that I was on. And I felt I should change. Because I would just, I would come home, my classes, put my books away, have dinner, then go out to the student center, hang out with, you know, whoever I would find from my friends and the new friend group, right? All the new Muslims at Rutgers at that time. And I actually, for a month, I didn't pick up a book and I didn't really, I didn't like the, the professor never said there's homework, right? So I didn't pick up a book for like a month. Then I realized, oh my gosh, it's all in the syllabus and we have to monitor ourselves, right? So uh, I didn't like the path that I was on. And so in the winter break of that term, around the winter break, slightly maybe in the fall, someone had given me a Hamza Yusuf cassette tape. And I didn't realize I was one of hundreds who were given a cassette tape, right? And loved it. So I would just listen to it over and over and over and over. I liked it, right? I didn't know who he was. I never thought about anything beyond that I liked the tape. And I would just listen to the tape over and over and over. One tape, right? And his style was, to be honest with you, I thought he was an African-American imam from East Orange. I had no clue he was even white, right? 
I had no clue. He was from California. And I had no clue of any of this stuff, right? Because for us in New Jersey, the only Afri- the only convert community were African-Americans in East Orange, right? So I thought he was like one of them. So like one of that community. I didn't know anything. Just listened to the tape over and over and over. And then uh, I, I decided, my parents, we went to an Islamic conference. And that's why it's good to, to go to these events because you never know who's going to benefit uh, we went to this conference and I was pretty upset at myself the whole time. I knew that the path I was on was no no good. It's not like I was in... And this is the heedlessness of a regular Muslim youth of that time was not like the heedlessness of the time before nor the after. I mean, the heedlessness for a Muslim to be on the wrong path of things today would probably include a lot more explicit and vile sins than a heedless Muslim who's on the wrong path in 1998. So it was different. But in their heart, it's the same idea. So uh, we were in this Detroit, uh, this conference in Detroit called the uh, Muslim American Youth Association, right? Which is now MESS. So we went to this conference and I didn't really attend any of the lectures because they were mainly in Arabic. But I did like to go to the bazaar. I went to the bazaar, and you have to understand, Islam back in the day, there was a very dry thing, right? It was, there were no exciting, dynamic new speakers. There were no American speakers. So the immigrant boundary was there, and and it wasn't something that was exciting at all, with no excitement at all. So I went to the bazaar, and I said, I had 11 bucks on me, right, in my pocket. And I said to myself, I'm going to buy a book to fix myself. Right to turn this thing around, and I looked and I found one book was called Purification of the Soul. I was like, "What else do you need?" Right, this is the book. So I paid it. I think it was like twelve bucks. The guy said, "All right, forget, just just take it for eleven bucks." I took the book. I went upstairs to my hotel room, and I didn't attend the classes at this time. I actually went to a Detroit Red Wings hockey game down the street from the conference center. I went to the hockey game. I would hang around Joe Louis Arena because hockey to me was like the world. Uh, But I did pick up this book and I went to my hotel room and I started reading the book. And I'm telling you, I got to page 11 or so or page seven or whatever. And he is talking about hell. Talk about Nara Jahannam. And I said to myself, I looked in the mirror. I was like, that's where you're headed. You're headed to Jahannam, right? And I said this, and I read the detailed torture of Jahannam, right? And I said to myself, this God, he isn't playing around, right? He's not playing around. And and the reason that I had no problem with this. Now, today, the, the, the way culture is today, it's almost... Like, wrong. People have this idea that it's cruelty to have punishment. And look, remember what I said earlier. It's about fairness. It's not about the absence of severity. My dad was very severe when it had to be, right? Very severe. Like, you would run, you would probably dissolve if he got angry. People would literally, he was known in the community. He had the voice of a bear, right? And when he got angry... It was Mount Vesuvius. You run for cover. Run for cover. 
But there was never a time where I felt this is oppression because they always had a point. And if I, ha- if I use my brain, right, and I'm fair about it, there was never a time where I was unjustly punished, right? And I would never really get punished. He would yell, yell, and, but then my, my whatever punishment it was, it was never a punishment, right? I actually never remember anything being taken away, anything being disallowed, right? That never happens. And even if it did, my mom would intercede, right? And this is actually one of the things about the only child, because I'm the only boy. So, and, and when you have a sister who's 10 years older, you actually become like an only child. And the whole mood of the house is going to flip upside down if one of the three members of the house is unhappy. So I had this in my favor and my mother would always sort of cool it down. Cool it down. And also, when you have your one son, that's your one-shot deal in life to transmit your lineage, right? So my dad will always sort of relent upon things. So that's the concept of intercession in practice. So the idea that there is Jehennam and there is hellfire and there is these punishments... To me, it never crossed my mind ever anything negative about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, ever. Because the issue is, is it fair or not, right? And the idea of severity, it never crossed my mind that you're owed a life of pleasure. And my parents, I never had this, right? There was never a time I would just sit around and have things done for me. Now, in comparison to some people, I was sort of pampered, right? But... When you have a household with one kid, there's no work to be done, right? There's no work to be done. There's no real uh, serious laundry issues. There's no real dirtiness issues, right? So there's no work to be done. So that's why I never did housework. And maybe I had to vacuum every once in a while, right? So uh, when I read those verses about Jehennam, I really said to myself, you got to fix yourself or you're headed to this place. And I really was like scared to my core. So I started to fix myself. How did I fix myself? I cut off any ties that I had that I was talking to anyone of the opposite gender to the point that they were like, what's wrong with you? Right? And I would just walk away. I did it to an extreme. That was the one thing. Because I would see some of the older sisters from the friend group that were in the same class. And sometimes they were the sisters of my friends. And I would talk to them. And I would figure, they're not my age, right? So they're like older sisters. So I didn't feel that it was something like immoral or something like that, right? Or that I was going it down that route, but I cut them off completely. And they thought I was, I was, I was odd. But I said to myself, you got to either do it or not do it. There's no two ways about it. Then started praying in the local masjid, which was Masjid Huda on Remsen Avenue. Then I started to not shave my beard. Then I started to wear a Palestinian scarf. To me, that was like being religious and an Afghani hat. And I had a history professor who started getting worried, right? To me, that was it, right? That was like a statement and a break from the past. I stopped hanging out with uh, the new friend group. I never really got in with them because when you're an only child, you're not very social. You don't know how to, you know, rub shoulders with people. So I wasn't social. I was, I was social in small groups. But with a big group, I didn't know how to get in. I had to learn that stuff later on. I didn't know how to get into a bigger group. So I was sort of on the on the slow end of getting into that big group. And I wasn't comfortable with it. I was used to small groups. So I started on that path. And then the fateful day 
was when one of my mentors, really, really like a, a, a older brother who maybe four years older than me, he gave me a box of C, a cassette and v, VHS tapes of Hamza Yusuf. That was it. That day he gave me that box. He never saw that box again. Right? I kept it in my car. I put it in my house after that. And it was nonstop. Nonstop. Literally. In the car. In the house. Like I had an apartment I shared with my sister. But she was a medical. Uh, she was a resident. So she's out like 36 hours at a time. And then when she's home she's asleep. So I was alone all the time. And I actually no. She, second semester she got married and moved out. So I had the apartment to myself. So I'm listening to these tapes literally 24 hours a day. And back in the day, you put, you played the tape and then you hit a button that auto reversed the tape, right? And the VHS tape all day long. And I became, I developed an obsession with these tapes. And then Hamza Yusuf came to, uh, to New York. In the winter of that year, he came to New York City. And this, to me, was the most exciting thing after going to Madison Square. I went to, going to Madison Square Garden for the first time for the Rangers. That was the most exciting thing in my life, right? Seeing Mark Messier live, to me, was the most exciting thing that happened to me when, until that time. Going to Hajj was the second most exciting thing. And then seeing Hamza Yusuf live was the third most exciting. And he didn't disappoint. He gave one of those talks... And he said, the drums of war are beating. And I'm literally, I had goosebumps, right? And then afterwards, my dad snuck around backstage and we talked to him. And he was at that time fiery, right? You never saw him except in a thobe and a turban, right? And he said that he was having a program in Morocco and that it would be advertised. And my whole whole rest of February to July, all my life was just thinking about February to August, because the program was August 1st to August 31st. And my whole, uh, every waking moment from that time on, it was February 17th at the Walt Whitman Auditorium in Brooklyn, that talk. And the flyer, I remember, was a green flyer, right, that was being passed around. We went to that event. After that, he said, I have a program this summer and it'll be advertised. My dad said, where is it? He said, in Fez, right? So I went home to the Atlas, picked up the Atlas and went to I looking for in Fez, right? So I had no, I didn't realize he said in Fez, two different words. That's how I'm telling you, I had no clue about anything. Zero clue about anything in Fez. So I'm looking for Infez and I cannot find Infez anywhere. So I went to my mom. I said, this atlas is missing a city, right? Where the heck is Infez? So she says, no, it's the city's called Fes, right? So I looked up Fes. There's no Fes at all. F-A-S was not in the atlas. And then it's way later that I discovered that it was F-E-Z in the Western language, in like Western literature, it's spelled F-E-Z. So, I, so from that moment, from February 17th, to August 1st, every waking moment was thinking about this trip, right? And that trip, I would have to say, was the most exciting, like the the thing I waited for most in life ever was that trip. And you have to realize, modern youth will never have these experiences. The reason being is that we have such an inundation of good things, right? That one 
really, really good thing will be watered down, right? So in a, if it was in our time today, and this event was going on today, within a second, within two minutes, you can Google all the sites of Fez. You can Google videos of Fez, right? And by the way, all of the Western you know, culture has already gone there. So it lost, it's a, every place has lost any old world charm that it used to have or mystique or difference, just being different, right? Also from minute to minute, let alone for five months or eight months, there's so much inundation of stuff that it's so hard to think about August in February. You can't even think about, you know, March when it's February, because it's just, you have a flood of stuff. So every waking moment, I was thinking about this trip. And when he would speak about stuff in tapes, I would just practice it right away. There was not even a question. If he said a dua, I wrote it down and I recited it, right? If he said this, you should say this dua every morning and evening, I would say it, right? Everything. He started talking about Mauritania. I started getting rid of my furniture. Right? I started wearing any Islamic clothes that I had. Right? Stopped wearing jeans. Uh, my parents were worried. They're like, this is extreme. Right? They were unhappy. I didn't know how to wear a turban, so I found a bandana in the house. I found some t-shirts. I ripped them up. I started making them into turbans. At the same time, very interestingly, there was a Mauritanian young man. And this poor kid was illiterate, very slow. I mean, he's a Bedouin. He's a nomad, right? And my parents said, we got to take care of this kid. He was 17 and his name was Wali, right? I mean, the, <laughs> it's amazing. His name was Wali and he was a Mauritanian. And Wali was someone my parents had sympathy for because his dad just dumped him here. And this kid was just going to be lost in life. He was living in the basement of... Some people in Lakewood who were from Mali. He was living in their basement at, I guess, charity, paying them like 50 bucks a month or something. And he was working with anyone in the community who had an odd job. Pumping gas, he messed that up. When he pumped gas, he, his first time pumping gas, he forgot to take the, the gas thing out of a Mercedes Benz. And that Mercedes Benz drew, drove off, Right. And it snapped and it was loss of gas and the guy had to pay 6,000 bucks. So this guy, this kid was miskeen. So my parents said, listen, every day when you get back from school, he was 17. He So he had to do senior year. You come straight to our house, take a taxi. And my mom would give him an odd job in the house and feed him dinner. And I would sit and look at this kid who grew up as a Bedouin, I guess, and not really a Bedouin, but for us... All of Africa is a Bedouin, right? In comparison to our upbringing. He would sit and when my mom would give him food, there would be a bowl and the different pots, right? And there would be plates, bowls, spoons, and pots of food. So like rice, salad, a meat. Our diet was very simple. It was Everything was different. Egyptian food has a lot of different dishes, but it's very basic. Like there's a carb, usually rice. There's a salad. There's a meat. Okay, and that's what I tell you. Egyptian stuff is culture is very mild and balanced. He would choose the bowl all the time. He would take all the food and put it in the bowl. 
Then take a spoon, crouch down on the floor next to the wall, mix all the food together and eat like that, right? Crouch down like squatting next to the wall. My dad would walk in and he's like, what is this? Sit down on the, sit down on the table and don't mix up your food like this. How, why are you mixing up your okra with the salad with the, with the salmon, right? Right? He's mixing everything up. And to me, this, he became the person that I actually spent more time with than the friends group. I would just sit there watching him because I'd never seen a creature like this before. And when my mom would ask him to do a job, I remember one time my mom said to him, uh, we need to, to mow the lawn, right? For me, mow the lawn. Oh my gosh, what a headache. To me, first thing, well, I'm allergic to pollen. So I'm going to wear a bandana around my neck, around my nose, over my nose. Number two, I'm going to go and put on my work clothes. Number three, I'm going to go and put on my old beat up sneakers. It took me 15 minutes to get ready, right? To mow the lawn. Okay. Al-Wali, on the other hand, I get out there and I see he's half done with the job already. Barefoot. Mowing the lawn barefoot, right? I mean, he was so hardy and sturdy. And to me, this creature was uh, so amazing to look at. And it was just amazing that here I am, Hamza Yusuf's talking about all these Mauritania stories. And here I am crossing paths with an actual Mauritanian. This thing was like, a, 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 it ended up all the factors coming in together. I started sleeping on the ground. Uh, everything was transformed, right? Everything was transformed in about six months. Then I went to, I finally went to that trip in Morocco. And it was just uh, beyond mind-blowing. You took a person who's never seen Islam outside of Saudis, Egyptians, and Palestinians. That's the only Islam I ever saw. Now, I didn't, Pakistanis, I, we didn't even see, right? I didn't even know what that was. Like, I knew that they're there, right? But we didn't mingle with them. It's not our community. Not like today, where if you're Muslim, you are dealing, interacting, I should say, with Pakistanis. That's just a fact of life. There's 60% of the Ummah probably in the Western Hemisphere, 60% Pakistani, 20% Arab, 20% other. That's pretty much what you're going to get, right? Everywhere. So it's not like today, where, you know, Daisy culture is part of your life. Okay, every Muslim's life. Okay, back in the day, it wasn't like that. So our masjid was all Arabs. The conferences we went to was Arabs. The masjid that we went to were all Arabs, right? So uh, I was, I was told, I'd never seen Morocco, never seen Moroccan culture, never knew anything about it, right? Never knew any of these things. So it was like an explosion of everything I knew and it brought a whole world that I didn't know. Right. And that began another type of journey where there is as much goodness as there is struggle and regrets. Because I was an ignorant person with a small bit of knowledge, very small amount, with no access to real teachers, yet trying to achieve something. Right. Trying to study, trying to get better and making more mistakes and having more misunderstandings than otherwise right and i say the only positive that i did have was that a person should commit their life to the dean that's what i knew other than that i made a lot of probably i have so much regrets 
but I can't really regret the decisions. I just regret, I just wish that I wasn't so ignorant, right? And and regret the mistakes that I made as a result of that ignorance. And that actually happens all the time because I love to learn, right? I always want to get better. And I mean, who doesn't, right? But when you do that, when you live like that, always trying to learn and you're a student in life, guaranteed you will as much knowledge as as much as you learn stuff you have to regret stuff right like today i'm learning something that i never focused on before right once you're once you hit 40 your body starts to really like act weird and i'm not even 40 yet but once you get there when you get start inching you have weird feelings in your body like creakiness right like just you're you start not feeling great so this is something I never, ever paid attention to before. I've learned more about the human body than in one year, in two years, than in 38 years before that, right? So um, you're it's always learning. And I didn't know a lot of things, but I put an effort. I have to say one thing. I put like a dogged effort into things. And alhamdulillah, I think I did get some results out of that. Made a lot of mistakes. Maybe even... Um, had reputations even that I wouldn't want to have, but no regrets about the effort and no regrets about intention. I never tried to hurt anyone or to lead anyone to astray or to, you know, uh, do something negative. I can't really remember any time I purposely intended that. I may have done those things, right? But I never purposely intended it. So that's the nature of when you're when you live life as a student of life. I always, whenever I would uh, get bored, and it happens, and I would think to myself, uh, I'm not excited about anything anymore, right? Like the stuff I learned in the dean, halas. It's not. I'm not excited about certain things anymore. Like I've studied it. It was mysterious. I learned it. What's next? And there's two things about this. Number one is that. The creation, anything created, will always end. The only thing that doesn't end is nearness to Allah Himself. But nearness to Allah also has tools. Allah Ta'ala draws you near by opening for you one of His blessings, right? And one of His attributes that you never had before. So you love Allah as that's a path to loving Allah, right? And Allah calls this Al Wasila. Right? Seek wasail to Allah means. So the goal has to be one, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But whenever I would feel that this path, I've sort of dried up this well, it's dried up for me. It's not something that I'm motivated. I'm not excited to wake up anymore, right? But I always remember, right, as a matter of iman, like in your intellect, with your intellect, something you know with your mind, that what Allah possesses, even on this earth, has no end. And I would always just make a dua, oh Allah, make me amazed again and excited again. Make me excited again. Right? Give me something to be excited about again. Not for that thing. I know that thing is going to come and go. Right? It's going to come and go. Right? But give me something to be excited about again so it could revive my love for Allah Ta'ala. Right? And that it could be something that I um, is a means. And it, Allah always delivers something because it's never ending. You could be 70 years old, Allah will give you something new, something you've never had before, right? 
and a, and you have to have the spiritual awareness that these things are tools they come and go right allah uses them to revive your heart so whether it's something physical political material financial spiritual otherwise all of these are merely tools to wake up your gratitude and love for allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and everyone should live life as a learner and whenever you're bored in life you should you really got to fight that off you can never be allah always has a new toy right there's always a new toy in the world and you have to understand that is merely a means to make you love your creator even more and subhanallah allah ta'ala if you follow sharia and you follow his law sincerely and you love him sincerely and remember him sincerely you will live a life that really you, you all you have to say is oh allah you have given me everything that i could possibly want because one of the greatest things is it gives you contentment too and the only thing i have to say is forgive my sins there's no way i could give gratitude and on top of that i give offense by committing sins but even that is a gift from allah in the sense that he forgives and when he for, he forgives the sign of his forgiveness is that he inspires you to tawbah he hides your sins and he makes you uh, regret those sins and and makes you stronger as a result of those sins so what made you want to study islam full-time uh the life that hamza yusuf was living was a life of studying doing dhikr and da'wah and i just imitated that's how simple it is right i saw him doing that i saw other youth doing that sheikh ibrahim osiefa was one of the first people i was like man this man is lives drinks sleeps knowledge dhikr da'wah teaching and that's what I'm doing. So whenever people say, people always ask the wrong question. They say, what do you want to do when you grow up? Mistake. It's who do you admire now and want to be like when you grow up? Because I had Sheikh Ibrahim Osiyafa, Sheikh Abdullah bin Hamid Ali, right? Yahya Rodas. Sheikh Yahya Rodas was actually three, he's older than me. But I always thought, he's, he, thought he was the same age as me. But he was, he had a different gift. He had a gift that his parents allowed him to do what he wanted. I mean, I could never have done what he did, which is basically drop out of school and travel the Muslim world and study, right? And I was, I was like, oh my gosh, right? How am I going to catch up to these guys? And my parents were like, drop out of school, you're nuts. The only time they thought I would, I would, I would leave college was to just to sign up for a Muslim college. And the Muslim college was Medina University, right? And, or Mecca University. Umar Qura University. My parents agreed. They registered me for that, right? I was accepted into Umar Qura University. My dad went to scope it out. He had a business, he had a trip for other purposes, right? Uh, and he went to Umrah and he scoped out and he went around the university and he went to University of Medina. Now, using his just instinct, his fitra as a Muslim, he said, there's there's no way I'm letting my son come to this place because they were so extreme and the medkhali if you don't know that the, the medkhali thing is that's that's good but the medkhalis are a group of really extreme Wahhabis right and he came upon a convert who had converted and left that school and he said what happened he said he was burnt out even from Islam completely and my dad happened to bump into this. It's Qadr of Allah. 
And he said, what, what kind of things are you talking about? Like, why would you do that? You're in the city of the prophet. He said, I was humming one day, hanging my clothes, humming a tune that uh, I had remembered from my jahiliya. Just humming a song, right? He got reported. He got sent to have a discussion with the mashayikh, right? And he got almost expelled from the school. And he found this to be so extreme that he ends up leaving the school and having even almost wanting to be burnt out of Islam completely. And my dad met with some of these kids and he was saying, hey, well, World Cup 98 was happening at that time. And it was a big deal because Zidane was a Muslim. Zainuddin Zidane ends up scoring two goals in the World Cup. First time that a Muslim is on the world stage in a non-political matter. And at that time today, I mean, that's quite a norm. Muslims are out there, right? Uh, that time, that was a big deal. For a Muslim to be mentioned on the world stage like that was a humongous thing. And he said something like, what do you all think of Zainuddin Zidane? And they said, Astaghfirullah al-Azim, World Cup, this games are haram, blah, blah, blah. And my dad said, my son is going to, he's not going to tolerate this, right? This is not going to be good for him. So he came back with the idea to convince me not to go. By, while he was there, I was in uh, Morocco, and there was a man named Nazim Baksh. And he was a guy who was a no-nonsense guy. He, and most of these environments, by the way, they attract, they didn't used to, but now they attract people who are conflict-averse, I believe. Nazim was not conflict-averse, right? He was not conflict-averse. He said to me straight up, you're making a big mistake, right? You're making a big mistake if you're going to University of Medina. And he sent, sent me for a loop. I was so confused, right, by what he was saying and upset. But he got me, my attention. He didn't try to say, well, maybe rethink things. No, he said it directly, right? And it got me thinking. And here why I had dropped out. I had sent Rutgers a letter of deferment. I had told everyone I'm transferring. I had got letters of recommendation. I had got whatever I needed to transfer to Umar Qura slash Medina University, whichever one they put me in. Because they said it'll be Umar Qura, but you need to do two years of Arabic in Medina. And so that was my plan. And I got back and I was hesitant about it. At the same time, my dad didn't like it. So it ended up not happening at all. And I go back to Rutgers. But it was watching these men live their deen. Live it day in now. It's studying, doing dhikr, and doing dawah. And I was like, let me do that too. I didn't. I just didn't have the resources at the time. So I was like in a desert. Okay. And uh, making some misunderstandings and elevating things that should not be. And not doing a lot of basics. Right. But I all those things got um, figured out later on. So how did you choose where to study after that? It was, again, all networks. So it so happened. So when I was there, I heard the word Hadramaut. And I heard it again from people who were in the Dean Intensive circuits. So it's all networking, right? Um, And there was a young man named Dr. Omar Mahmoud. It just so happened, of course, by Qadr of Allah Ta'ala, that his uncle, he's from L.A., his uncle lived in Tom's River and happened to be my mom's colleague, right? So he's on the way to Dar al-Mustafa. 
But he comes to visit his uncle, Dr. Purvez, in Tom's River, who's my mom's colleague at the hospital. So it so happens that we cross. he comes to the local masjid to pray with us. And I noticed right away something's different about this young man. And he has the attributes of all the Hamza Yusuf students at the time. Doesn't talk much. Has a great manners, right? Wearing Islamic clothes, but with a Western twist to it, right? Very well-groomed beard. And I said, something's up with you. I was like, where are you from? And he said, L.A. I said, are you a student of Hamza Yusuf? He said, yes. And uh, I said, he said, I'm going to Dar Musafat Tanim. I was like, oh my gosh, this is where I got to go, right? Because I heard that. I had no connection. My parents, no way they're letting me go to Mauritania. They thought I would get malaria, right? And that was all out of the question. But they did like Yemen because Yemen is Arabs, right? So they sort of have more of a relation to that. They can relate to that. And, uh, I mean, Mauritania, they're Arabs mixed with North African, Berbers, right? And my, my parents were always worried that the Moroccan Mauritanians are Sufis with magic and innovations and stuff like that. And Al-Wali's dad came. And Al-Wali's dad, he visited, and he really sent my parents and the whole community for a loop. He came in with the big blue dara, praying with his arms down, with a, a set of beads, sibha, that was so huge, right? You could use it as a weapon. The, the beads were so big and black and like made of like marble or something, right? Stones. So they were like, what in the world is this? And, and the man, he had a rock with him at all times. Right, the, I guess the Mauritanians have this habit of not having water handy. So they have the habit of having a, a rock with them at all times for Tiamum, which I've never understood because it's a desert. Why do you need a rock? You could just make Tiamum outside. But they always have a rock. And my parents were like, this is shirk, right? This is just, he's got a rock with him. There might be a jinn inside the rock, right? So they were so freaked out. Any scent of West Africa was out of the question completely. And for me, I was like, listen, I got to work with what I have, right? I had so much materially growing up, so much st- emotional stability, mental stability, financial stability. But what I didn't have was access to these shiuch. I had to be very, uh, what's the word? I had to take advantage of every, I always forget this word. It's um, opportunistic. I had to be very opportunistic. It was, I had to be very stingy about any opportunity that I had. So when Omar Mahmoud came, I latched on and I said, oh man, maybe I can go to Tarim too, all right? So he went and my parents loved him for two reasons. Number one, he was so well-mannered. Number two, he was going for one year in Tarim, then going to medical school. And my parents said, this is this kid is a good example. He's not some dropout, all right? And they were very wary of these convert dropouts. My parents would say, you're not going to live that life. I don't care what you do. You're not going to drop out and roam the world. No, you have a house. You're going to get an education. You're going to get married. Anything else you do in your spare time, right? There is none of this dropping out of life business, right? And they were ne- they never liked this, right? So that was out of the question. And honestly, I would probably do the same thing. There's no way I'm going to let my sons drop out, my son or daughter drop out of school, roam around the Islamic world, studying with Mashaikh. This is, there's not happening, right? Simple as that. So that was their thing. And to me, I was, this was oppression, right? This was just limitation, okay? And I thought to myself, um, I got to take advantage of this. So this was really from Allah Ta'ala. Omar Mahmoud went, he came back. 
a year later. But it was two years from when I came back from Morocco to when I went to Mauritania. Those two years were very dark in in spiritual sense. In the sense that my mission of learning and developing myself, right? And that in that challenge of Islam, it was, I mean, bad. It was I was not doing well, right? I was not doing well in living up to what I was trying to live up to. I did not have many teachers. I was like someone going through a desert. And New Jersey at the time did not have mashaykh, did not have programming, right? I was like someone going through a desert. And really, there was a moment where I thought it was, the dream would be gone. There was very little support. Very little support. And again, like I said, having material, emotional, financial, familial support, all that I had. 110%. But in this world of deen and learning and studying, I had, uh, it was stingy. It was, I had to be opportunistic. It was not easy. So I had to fight. A dogged fight. And I remember at one point, almost, there was literally a moment I thought, I'm defeated. And my heart is completely blackened. Right? And I've lost and I'm going to give up. And then at that point, I don't know, like a ham from Allah that to fight back by the, the word that came to my mind as if Allah had planted this in my mind or in my heart was Allahu Akbar. Like you're worried about something, but Allah's greater than that thing. You have to believe that. You have to believe Allah's greater than that thing. And whenever people lose their iman, quote unquote, it's mainly they lose belief in the quality of qudra. Divine ability. They they feel that their challenges are greater than Allah's power. That's really how it is. So I said, Allahu Akbar in myself. And I said, you have to believe Allah's greater. And I started really putting out, renewing my efforts. Omar Mahmoud came back. And my parents were so impressed with the with this young man. He came back. And, bef- and I remember my dad was watching him from the other end of the mosque. I saw him. And he wouldn't even salam me. He said, wait one second. I have to salam your dad first, right? And my dad was just floored, right? By this. His behavior was so good, right? So my parents were like, you can go to Tadim for the summer. And that was not easy either because I had messed up on some other things, totaled my Mustang, messed up on other things that I almost lost that privilege too, right? And that was a fight. So, but I end up going to Dar Mustafa. Right. And I end up spending six weeks there. I said, you know, I want to do 40 days. I want to make sure I'm in physically inside of Dar Mustafa for 40 days because 40 is that number that people always talk about. And alhamdulillah, the way the schedule worked out, I was in Dar Mustafa for 42 days. Right. And it's funny because Imam Noe has the 40 hadith, but there's actually 42. Right. As insurance. So I got my 42 days there. And I'm telling you, it was like being in a car wash. Right. I would feel. The gunk coming out of my heart. And Habib Omar taught me how to do dhikr properly. I was doing dhikr however I wanted, like just tasbih. I was doing the awrad of morning and evening. But Habib Omar showed me how to do dhikr intensely. And doing those intense dhikrs cleaned out a lot of my heart. And I was having dreams every day. Every day, dreams of Habib Omar. Every day, every day, every day. Right? And it was just unbelievable experience. Again, 40 days, It's the seed was planted. Was firmly planted. Right? That in my dark, in that dark time, I had no other mashaykh. I didn't know people. 
Hamza Yusuf, the tapes, but I wasn't in, in his community. I never spent intimate time with him, right? Habib Omar was someone I spent time the whole 40 days with. Like, he was away for a couple of days, but it was very often, two, three times a week, he would invite the Westerners for a lunch, or Habib Ali would invite the Westerners for a lunch, right? This was before Habib Ali was very famous, right? So I felt a relationship there. Like, I had Habib Omar's number, and I would call him. I would say, I finished the dhikr, give me another dhikr. And he's the only sheikh I knew. Years later, when I started to meet more mashayikh, I would always remember, who was the sheikh that when you're in your lowest moment, again, not lowest emotionally, material, or financially. No, lowest in the sense of trying to learn and had no other mashayikh. Like real worldwide mashayikh was only him. So I said, you stick with him. He was there for you in the beginning and he gave you time and he didn't have to. He answered calls, gave me a phone number, right? And never asked for anything back. Right? Actually, the first thing that they asked in Dar Mustafa was, did your parents approve of this trip? Because if they don't, they send you back. Right? So, I felt that they respect the, the family. Right? Not, they're not trying to recruit me for some group. There was no feeling of that. There was no pushiness. And they were so welcoming. And who else do I have? Right? In New Jersey, 1998, 99, 2000. So uh, I latched on and I kept on to that until today. If you ask me, I keep my religion very simple. Fiqh, the chain is Hamza Yusuf to Murabat al-Hajj. I never met Murabat al-Hajj, but I met his students, Sheikh Salik first, right? Who um, I don't have much contact with him today, right? Because he's in and out of Mauritania. But I did study with him over the phone and in person. But I'm, I'm my main source is now Sheikh Rami. Hamza Maqbul, Sheikh Hamza Maqbul, these are students of Murabat al-Hajj. But Murabat al-Hajj's way of, of fiqh, that approach, that's what I do. Keep it, that's what I had in the beginning, and that's what I'm going to keep. Likewise, Habib Omar, in matters of tasawwuf and da'wah, that's what it is. So, uh, anytime, uh, if, so I've been consistent with this. From 1998, 99, 2000, those initial mashayikh that I have, that's what I'm latching on to, all right? And that's what I keep up to now. Can you just talk a little bit about what you were looking for while you were there for the 42 days and what you were hoping to get out of it? So uh, when I went to Tarim, all I was looking for was something really simple, which was I just wanted to be in a good environment with people, uh, with people who could uphold, uh, you know, the example that we, we needed to uphold. And I was looking for very basic things, just just that basically, and and to have some kind of spirituality. I didn't even know what it really was uh, at the time that I was looking for it, but it really ultimately at the end of the day, what it was was a lot of dhikr. But uh, when I went to Tarim, everyone was talking about Habib Omar and Habib Ali at the time, and Habib Abdul Qadir al Saqaf, and I didn't know who they were, never met them, and I wasn't someone to submit my brain. Uh, without some kind of, you know, uh, rational inquiry into a matter. I just wasn't uh, for me to do that. Uh, every Muslim is taught. You have Allah and his messenger, and then everyone else after that is subjective or speculative in terms of what they're bringing forth. So I went in with that mentality. Not like a doubter or a skeptic. I was happy to be there. But to that degree of just uh, lay down everything, that wasn't there, right? So... I went in and very strangely, I immediately had a number of doubts immediately came into my mind 
because of all the philosophy that I had studied. And I felt like I needed to get this out. So I spoke about to, I went to see Habib Omar about this. I see, okay, though this is everyone uh, is is talking about this, this uh, sheikh. So then let me go and uh, take advantage of it. So I went and he advised me that the cure to these shukuk, not shukuk is not the right word, wiswas, is dhikr of la ilaha illallah. And he sort of taught me, obviously we know what dhikr is, but what he taught was how much dhikr was needed to actually have an impact. And I did a lot of dhikr of la ilaha illallah on that trip. And of course the awrad in Dar al-Mustafa are recited out loud about nine times a day, I counted. So tahajjud has a word. Before fajr, after fajr, uh, before dhuhr, after dhuhr. I think also uh, bef- after asr, after maghrib, uh, before uh, after before isha, and maybe I'm missing one somewhere. But I counted when I was there nine times that the, uh, there was a, a type of awrad recited, and usually surrounding the prayer times. Can you just explain what that is? Oh, sure. What a wird is, is a collection of verses and prophetic dua and dua authored by Mashaikh, usually in that order. So if you look at Imam al-Ghazali, he writes in his Yahya, he always cites the Qur'an first, the Hadith second, the words of the Salaf third, and then the words of uh, those after the Salaf, Salaf being the first three generations. So the Awrad usually take the same pattern. You'll see Qur'anic verses, you'll see the Masnoon, Ad'iyah, which is the du'a from the Sunnah, Masnoon being from the Sunnah. Then you'll find um, du'a written by scholars. Okay. Now someone will say, why do we need du'a written by scholars if we have the Quranic du'a, right? Well, Allah Ta'ala has given us a few, give us a lot of du'a, but also said, Ud'uni, astajib lakum, call upon me. And not everyone knows how to express themselves in a du'a, and sometimes you don't even know what's, what good thing to ask for. So the scholars as well, Allah has left it open uh, by that command. Uh, call upon me. Yes, with his words and with your own words, right? Uh, to call upon Allah Ta'ala. So the ulama have written du'as as well. So the awird is a collection of such. And it could be an entire surah followed by a short du'a. Okay, it could be different verses strung together. Not as a new surah or something, but just separated, but a dua of this from this surah, dua from this surah, dua from that surah. Right? And then, actually, a, Sayyidina Bilal was one of the first people to do that. He would recite a verse from one surah, recite a verse from another surah, recite a verse from a third surah. And then a man came to complain. He said, Bilal is mixing the Qur'an. So the Prophet called. he said, call him then, if that's the case. And the Prophet asking him, Asked him, Oh Bilal, you're being accused of mixing the Qur'an. And of course the Prophet was smiling. He knew Bilal wouldn't do anything wrong. And uh, Bilal said, Inni I'm mixing perfumes. Right. So he's not uh, making some new surah, but he's reciting one verse from here, another verse from here, another verse from there. Uh, anyone who said Adhkar of the evening knows this. You recite like, Ikhlas, Falaqnas, or Fatiha, Kursi, last three verses of... Uh, Baqarah, last three verses of Hashr, and then Ikhlas Falaq nas So we all know that that's not the invention of a new surah, but that's what awrad are. And sometimes the awrad has in it uh, re- repeated dhikr. And this is easy for the non-Arabic speakers, such as La ilaha illallah 100 times, right? Things like that. 
So there are different awrad and mashayikh throughout the centuries have authored awrad. And uh, these awrad have different times and places and whatever one can do, you know, they'll be rewarded for it. But the uh, best of awrads is that which is recited regularly. And most awrads are collections of the protective prayers. So Prophet ﷺ said, whoever recites this will be protected in the daytime until the nighttime. And whoever recites it at night will be protected until the daytime. So a lot of them are protections. Um, so what was kind of the culture shift like for you? And what was it like being around these teachers? It was this culture shift uh, because growing up, we weren't used to that much thicker, right? So that was a culture shift. Morocco was more of a culture shift of the actual culture. It was just sort of a little shock when you realize that, you know, everything is different. And maybe not everything, but because they did, I did pick up some of their Arabic, right? But it was quite different just from the the city itself and the nature of everything and being home away from home uh, for that period of time and that far away from home for that long. So, but in Tarim, it was more of a shift of seeing that so much that could being done. It's not something I was used to. Also, they go to graveyards all the time. It's like a norm, right? To visit the awliya in the graveyards was a norm. And so that was something I asked a lot of questions about. It's not something that we have in the West here. I mean, we don't have the graveyards in the West for Muslims. And it's definitely not part of the regular culture of Muslim religious life. But the Yemenis are very close to what I was used to of Arabs. So there wasn't a culture shock in that respect. In fact, I felt from all the Westerners, I actually got on pretty more intimately with some of them because I was able to communicate in a dialect as opposed to someone who had just learned the classical language. So they sort of related to me that I was sort of a Westerner, but sort of not a Westerner, which was always how I was, right? Uh, uh, when they, Whereas they're interacting with converts that are actual, you know, Americans, right? Or African-Americans, where the last hundred-some years, their, uh, their uh, families have been in America. Whereas for me, I was sort of 50-50, so they, I think they sort of viewed me as an, as you know, fifty percent Egyptian, but also a little bit American too. And um, okay, so what was it like leaving? I mean, you probably had a really intense forty-two days. Yeah, it was very intense. Leaving Morocco was harder because it was the very first time. Plus, the city of Fez, the way it was, and the nature of that trip, and me being much younger, three years younger, two years younger. But so I sort of knew what's coming the shift and I was able to balance myself a little bit more like most people when they get into something you go in so far you don't know where to stop until you get hurt same way when I came back from Morocco I was so regimented and I didn't know the nature of the nefs that your nefs is going to rebound back really badly in the same way that if you're physically unfit and you decide to get physically fit it's going to happen in waves and that first wave Right is going to be uh, the first time you get any momentum, you're probably going to take it too far and get hurt, get physically injured, like pull a muscle or something. Then you're going to be out for a longer time than you were in. And you're going to get worse. So that's actually what happened. So I had experience this time around. And this time around, all I did was was keep one uh, wird, right? That the sheikh had uh, given a dhikr that I would do a certain amount of it every day. So I pinned my progress on just f- fulfilling that. It's almost like someone who gets into physical fitness, goes all out, gets hurt really badly, 
and is out for a year. Now, next time he gets in, he should just keep one regiment, like 20 minutes of jogging a day, right? Uh, no more, no less. And so I was actually much more disciplined, and I kept that uh, for years after that. And I didn't have... From that time on, I was actually an incremental development, but very slow but steady. And consistency is far greater than intensity. And if you read the Hikam of Ibn Atta'illah, intensity belongs in the very beginning. Imam al-Haddad also talks about this. So if you're very intense in the beginning, that's good. You know, that shows who you truly are and what you truly want. But that's not going to last. Ibn Atta' says, whosoever had a fiery beginning, in other words, intense beginning, he will have a luminous end. In the middle, it's just consistency. And this is one of the things that people have to realize is in, the, in, in everything good, you have to embrace repetition. You have to embrace, you have to divest yourself from novelty and the love of novelty, right? And this is something where really those who succeed get separated from those who don't in every field, right? In the spiritual path or in fiqh, let's say. All right, I studied with this sheikh for a few uh, years. I'm tired of this madhab. I'm bored. Let me, let me try something new. Because everyone else is doing something new, so let me do that. And then you do that. Then you get tired of that, and everyone's being an activist. Let me be an activist and forget fiqh. So you're never going to develop. In spirituality, you need one regimen, right? If you are able to find a sheikh that can put you on that regimen, that's good for you. You're lucky in life. And you just stick to it. And don't worry about anyone else, all right? One of the things I didn't like about the culture of tariqas and and around Sufis is the competition of who's closer to the sheikh. I have no interest in that at all. I have zero interest in that. So actually, I find that it totally corrupts my intention. And in the end of the day, on Yom Al-Qiyamah, what matters in this life and the next is not your peers, it's your family. Allah ta- there's a number of hadiths that say, if a man's neighbors approve of him, that he's a righteous man, then Allah will forgive him. Then the hadith decreases to like 10 friends. Then the hadith decreases to his family. Then the hadith, another hadith decreases to just his wife, right? If, because some people don't have many friends. So, and some people, all they have is a spouse, right? So, so that's really what matters. And in life, what would you rather have? All your peers think you're great, but your son hates you, right? Or your daughter hates you? Or your peers, you're just not a big deal to your peers, but your family truly loves you, right? I mean, in this life, what matters? That goes to show you what matters with Allah. And this happens many times. And, and, and students will study not for the benefit of their community. They'll study to make a, prove a point to the other students, right? Uh, shiuch will author books to be looked at by other shiuch, right? Instead of for benefit the people. So all these are really important for people who are thinking about the spiritual path that the matter should be kept simple. It's going to be consistency. If you love novelty and you want, you know, Sufi cinema, then you're, you need to get rid of that. And you should keep close to your family. This is the best thing for your heart and for your life. And it, uh, it should be kept simple. Sharia, aqidah, sharia, and be consistent on your dhikr. Whatever anyone thinks, let them think what they think. Right? So that's really important to, to have that uh, long-term approach. Because tasawwuf also is not that I'm on the path. I should never commit sins again. 
it's not going to happen. That's this is not that's not life, right? You are going to commit sins. You're going to have rough spots. You're going to have times where your heart is completely rusted up and messed up because life happens, right? Which means work, children, commuting, family, drama, involvement, all blah blah blah. And the vicar has become something that is blown away, drowned out, watered down by quote unquote life. So it's important for people to know on the on the spiritual path that it's consistency because eventually all that stuff will go but you'll still have your your ibadah and it will uh, it'll shine through it'll defeat all those things over time. And then um you just to study Islamic knowledge both traditionally and academically through a master's and a PhD can you just talk a little bit about why you chose to do both? That wasn't re- that wasn't really my choice to be honest with you that wasn't my choice. I didn't ha- hold any value to Western academics when they talk about Islam. Zero. And the reason is that, yeah, they might dig up some nice historical books, right? But they present a different problem, a worse problem, an unseen problem that infiltrates the reader. If he studies Islam in that manner or he delves deep into it in that manner, and that is the separation of knowledge from practice. So uh, these people... Even he might be a great guy, but what they're doing makes me sick, which is treating Islam like it's some kind of a, a historical artifact to be examined and studied, but never to actually be internalized and practiced. Right. And all of those seminars. OK, if I had a, a loose stomach, I would have vomited in all these seminars. That's how disgusting they were of yip, yap, yip, yap, yip, yap about uh, texts and scholars and this and that and the other okay zero sense to internalize it or practice it and if someone says oh well it's not the place for it well who said that right is that something like a natural law that universities are not places and then they say for not places for practice that's how they created it right they they invent it's the west has invented they're secularized the school after the enlightenment uh, the secularization began to develop right so uh to me that was something that you can't just gloss over it you can't just let it pass why would i let it pass i'm under no compulsion to just accept this Zero compulsion whatsoever to accept this, right? So uh, I didn't accept it. I hated them, all of them, right? Uh, all the seminars, the books, the contentious, arrogant, uh, you know, assessment of a civilization that you're not even part of, okay? It has zero value to me. And, and as, as much value if I wrote a critique of Israel, right, as what a Zionist would think, right? Well, you're not us. You're not... Uh, you don't face what we faced. You don't know what we're going through. Okay, if I wrote a critique of the civil rights movement as a non-African American, if I wrote a critique of um, whatever, Black Lives Matter, whatever, as a non-African American, how far is that going to get, right? So uh, the whole enterprise of Islam and academia to me was something that my parents felt was a necessity for me to have a piece of paper that the West would recognize, not a piece of paper that the East would recognize. So even for them, it was practical. It had nothing to do. They knew the same thing I knew, that these people, most of them are a bunch of dogs. They knew that. 
but they were practical. I wasn't practical, right? So they forced it. And I accepted out of religious reasons, right? That you just can't upset your parents. But I remember making a great dua to not be affected by it. And doing my PhD on Imam al-Haddad helped because he himself loathed the Muslim scholars who were similar to this. And he called them al-mutarassimina bil-ilm. And in most of the letters that he has, which are unpublished, that I was able to get a hold of, and his uh, biography collected by one of his students, he wrote a huge biography of Imam al-Haddad, and in these works, which I read cover to cover every single letter in them over the span of one year, uh, all his books, then all of his letters, then his biography, then every possible history of Yemen in Arabic and English of Hadramaut of that time period. That was how I spent my first year. Okay, literally wake up in the morning, go to the SOAS library, read all day, jot some notes down, go home. And I had some jobs, usually had some little jobs for, for cash that I would do in the afternoons. Uh, then every ayah about the verses of da'wah, commanding right, forbidding wrong, etc. Then every hadith and their shuruhats, right? Then all the linguistic about da'wah. So my PhD was on the da'wah and the work of Imam al-Haddad. Well, one of the things that he loathed was al-mutarassimina bil-ilm. Those people who are, acad- are career scholars. That's his life, he's a career scholar. He's writing to impress other scholars, right? Not writing to benefit the people. So he critiqued these uh, commentary upon the commentary upon the commentary. As he said that this is being written at a time when people aren't praying properly in your town. So he saw that this is uh, uh, a break between knowledge and practice. Because as a scholar, your job is tabiyin, bayan. Bayan is to clarification. Your job is ta'lim, to teach. And so he broke it down and he said there's two things that a scholar has to do. He has to go to the people and wake them up out of heedlessness with stories, with reminders of heaven and hell, with belief in Allah. And then he has to go back home and receive the students. And when he goes to the people, his discourse should be solely about reminders and wake up wake up the people's hearts but when he comes back and he's teaching them they're now coming as students he has a far more um, uh, distinguished position and now he could say i don't want you sitting like this i don't want you doing that you're not going to be my student if you do this but he can't do that from the start he has to go wake up the people and make them students first so uh, reading his works actually strengthened exactly what my fear was or, st- or strengthened me against my what my fear was and it actually confirmed what my gut instinct was telling me that these people are frauds and fakes, right? And that it's actually a shame for Islam to be uh, subjected that anyone could just write about it, right? So uh, if, if really if it was up to me, uh, I wouldn't allow it. If I was a sultan, i shut all these people down, right? You're going to write about it when you put in the work, right? And you live it. Just goes to show how weak uh, the status of uh, Muslims is in that all these people can write and pontificate about Islam. And not all of them are like ill-willed. But I do find it something that 
isn't consistent with the re- with the way other communities and I and beliefs treat their academic departments, where they're in total control of of their departments. And then one thing I just wanted to talk about briefly, because you do mention him in the beginning of your dissertation as someone that helped you pursue the idea, and he's visited us here in New Jersey, and you've talked about him before, is Sheikh Mohsen al-Najjar. And can you just talk a little bit about him and kind of his importance and uh, the role that he played in your life? Yes, Sheikh Mohsen al-Najjar was in Virginia at a time that I was very much in need of guidance. He was someone who had studied in Tarim as well, and he was someone that did have lunches at his house, dinners at his house, in a time where there were not there was not much activity. And I used to go to there, Maltasim Atiyah used to go to those, Yahirotis for a period of time was there, um, the Sidqi family, which I actually roomed with, I took rented a room in their basement, were there. So there was a lot of nice people. There was a brother named Khalil Moore, very active brother between Tarim and Virginia that was there. Um, we would go there, a couple of other people whose names I'm, I'm skipping my mind right now, but we would go there and he would um, sort of revive us a little bit, give us a little bit of revival and give us a little bit of nourishment and energy with his majadis and his, his talks and, his, and, and just his company. And he helped a lot. And then, interestingly, I moved to England and he moved the year later. So we overlapped again in England. So... Yeah, he's, he was uh, part of the picture pretty early on. He's intentionally outside of public da'wah, but he does private events, things in his home, and I think there's a little center. His, his, his basement has become a little center or the first floor of his house. And he just does, um, he just works for that small community of people. He's um, intentionally not a public scholar. And... Uh, if you uh, know people who know people, then you might get it close to him, right? Or invited into one of these, but he's intentionally not public. So he, but he does. Again, in the in the field of dhikr, he's extremely powerful, and he will wake you up if you if you go there for one of his majalis, He will wake you up. He's very powerful, and you could sense in him the effects. The effects of dhikr is that is that uh, who is better, someone who is dead or someone who we put light in them and he walks with that light into the people. So he actually wakes you up. He sort of uh, gives you a jolt of spiritual energy because his dhikr is very strong and when you're around him, you can feel it. So that's Sheikh Mohsen who's sort of a non-public or private, I guess you can say. Uh, semi-private, semi-public, who knows what the the right term for Because sometimes I'll do a public event, but mostly it's private. Um, so what made you want to come back to New Jersey and eventually start Safina? Okay, well, I always felt that, I always felt that, what is the purpose of this thing? Uh, the purpose is to effect change. How are you going to effect change when you go to a place where you're a stranger, Right. And if you can't go to people who are who know you, right, and you can't affect change, then that's a weakness, right? You should be able to go to your own place that this is where you grew up, this is where uh, you you came up. You should give back to that place. Like, what is the value of encourage people to study if they're going to study but go somewhere else? 
So I felt that the right thing for me to do was to try to come back to uh, the, the tri-state area. And it was sort of necessity as well. So you finished graduate school. I missed the first round. I only got offered from a school. I can't even remember what it was. It was in London. It was right next to SOAS. It was one of these schools. It was part of the University of London. I was offered a position, but it wasn't a full-time. It was a half-time job that would elevate to full-time like in a year. And I just couldn't afford that. Financially, there's not, not going to work. You can't live in London on that salary. So I didn't do that. I told them I can't do that. And then I came here. I came here by necessity, out of necessity. And when I came here, I missed the first round of, of academic jobs. I had gotten close to one in Virginia, or sorry, Pennsylvania. Uh, but I didn't get, I won the third round and that didn't get it. And it's very subjective, these jobs, right? After a while, the qualifications are a wash. So I didn't get that. And I wasn't doing well in academia. And then it hit me one time is because I hate it. I've always hated it. I thought to myself, I played soccer. I won. I played hockey. I won. I studied, I had very little resources in terms of mashaykh. Like I, I had many resources in terms of, of uh, financial comforts, etc. Those resources I had, like backing in terms of my family is a family of, of deen and taqwa and they try to practice what they can and they're, you know, they're, that part is fine. But in terms of access to scholars, I didn't have. But I scrapped and I learned quite a bit, right? Just by sheer will and effort and tawfiq from Allah. But I was like thinking to myself one day and walking in, in one of these, uh, these job fairs, these academic conference, American Academy of Religion. And it hit me. I'm like, I think I realize why I'm going uphill all the time here and I'm not succeeding. It's because I loathe this, right? I actually loathe the whole process. I loathe being here. I remember I was at the American Academy of Religion. I did my interviews and I would leave. I would go to the local masjid. I made friends there in San Antonio. I just made friends right off the bat and we would eat out every night. They would take me to a different place and I would just hang out with them. I was spending every possible minute outside the conference. And every minute I was in the conference, I loathed it, right? And that's why I didn't do well in it because I hated it. So eventually though, I had to work. So I worked as a, a high school coordinator for an Islamic school when I missed the first round of jobs. So I took that job. But they couldn't pay me over the summer, so I had to leave and I took another job. That's when I got a series of jobs in Connecticut, working in the colleges there. And I was scrapping, teaching, and loathing it as well, hating it. And hating the idea you're teaching Islam to a people who can easily just blaspheme it. And you can say nothing, right? So I didn't like that either. Uh, but I did it. And I did it for three and a half years, four years, eventually got a full-time job in teaching Arabic at Yale. Uh, but again, there's a glass ceiling to that. In Arabic, I mean, there's only so much satisfaction you can get from teaching Arabic. So the first chance I, eventually I got fed up and I said, forget this. I'm, I need to do da'wah, right? Like actual talk to real Muslims who are doing this for their lives, not just for an exam. So I worked, the first job I was actually controversial. It was the first, the only guy who had money to hire me and would hire me because I wasn't really someone who was on a scene or anything. And there wasn't many institutions was the guy who founded the Ground Zero Mosques. 
if you remember that controversy. So this this guy was really one of the biggest people that was in my early life because he was so different from everything that I expected. And I thought he is a mental case, right? But you can't think someone's a mental case when they're as successful as he is. So I thought I have a lot to learn because human beings and life is not what I'm expecting it to be. Because I'm thinking to myself, everything should be thought, thought out academically, intellectually, rationally. And here you go, here you have a guy who thinks everything through his gut. Everything is by his gut instinct and that he's in charge. And that's the only rule. The only rule in the company is that he's in charge. Nobody else is in charge, right? And that came, I'm like, oh, this is dictatorial, right? Dictatorial, that's what made him a millionaire, right? So I thought to myself, I got everything wrong, right? I'm so theoretical and academic. Here you have a guy who is 0% academic, but he knows how the real world works. And he says oftentimes that he learned a lot from me, but he doesn't realize I learned a lot from him. He was learning his ropes in Islam, bungling up and banging around, trying to figure stuff out. But he was so full of energy. It's unbelievable. You can't keep up with this guy. Um, uh, he was learning stuff from me. But I was also observing him and realizing that he lives in a whole other world where ideas don't matter. It's might makes right. It's willpower. It's taking a chance. And he uh, took that chance and he got me my foot in the door. I was able to get my foot in the door and I was able to teach some of the curriculums that I had put together in his mosque. And again, he's a, he's, his guy is a risk taker. He heard one khutbah and we started talking and we, he, he, he pulled me on. He hired me. So he was someone who I really started to like and almost prefer his natural way of operating through willpower, through belief, one thing about him, he would never accept a negative diagnosis for any problem, right? They would tell him, there's no money in the account. There's no way we're going to do this. Is, is that negative news? Reject it. Forget the idea of let's gather all the evidence and make an informed decision. No, he sort of bends the world the way he wants to. And at the meeting table, you're like, this is absolutely insane, right? But then step back, look at the result that he produced. And he is now one of the top developers in, uh, in America, in New York City. He applies this function of reality is going to be what I keep thinking it is. And enough times he's been right to make himself a made man, right? And to make himself someone who now has a building that's going up that's going to be one of the most luxurious apartment buildings in lower Manhattan. The downstairs of it is going to be a masjid and a museum for the messenger, peace be upon him, and a garden and a think tank. There's going to be a garden outside and a, for people just to chill and a think tank. In, in, in the museum, it'll double as some kind of, you know, place for talks and stuff. Um, he was persistent about an idea of a, a community center in lower Manhattan for the Muslims. This community center wouldn't have worked for a couple of reasons. There's no community in lower Manhattan. That's number one. Number two, uh, no one's going to drive into the city to swim. 
or to attend a talk. No one's going to, New Jerseyans will not do this, right? Anyone outside of the city will not do this. We know that for a fact, right? No one wants to go into the city. Uh, so unless it's like a one-off thing, it's not going to be a regular thing. But by his persistence and insistence upon this idea, it eventually budged in or, or grew into something totally different, which was way more practical. And that's why you can't say he's insane because he's actually very practical, right? And he it shifted when he got out of the Islamic work field and back into his own field, which is building apartments and selling them to rich people. And then as an after effect, as a side effect, a little last line item, a mosque at the bottom. That's easy. So when he did what he was good at, he, he succeeded big time. And he defied all the odds. And he had so many odds against him. The whole city was against him. They, they had a campaign against him. And when I, I would remember sitting in the kitchen with my wife in Meriden, Connecticut. We had two little kids. We'd put the kids to sleep. And she developed this type of entertainment of reading about this guy, right? And how stubborn he was. And we would just laugh. I was like, this guy is a classic Egyptian. He's half Egyptian, half European. Uh, we would just laugh at how stubborn he was, right? And I was like, this guy is so Egyptian, it's unbelievable. And I finally found someone with some fight in him, right? Because every time the New York Times would attack him, he would push back. He would push right back. And every time one of these right-wingers would attack him, he would get even more stubborn. I was relishing in this. I love this, right? And because, honestly, we have a lot of weakness. We have a lot of people who want to impress everyone. They want to impress the media, right? They want to be just want everyone to love them. He didn't want everyone to love them. He knows how the world works. You insist and persist on what you want, then the world will respect you. You try to make the world love you, they're not going to love you, right? They're just going to feel you're a wimp and a doormat that should be pushed to the side. So I can't gloss over, even though it was basically like a maybe a few months experience, maybe a year, full year, it was way more formative for him and for me than one year on our lifetime lines, right? So um, he's uh, one of the most unique people you ever meet. And uh, even myself, I can only tolerate certain doses, amount of dosage, because I'm always the talker in the room. Well, when I get there, I, have, I, can't, I can't get a word in when he's around, right? So if you want to see some guy who takes over the room, it's going to be him, right? So anyway... Uh, that was an experience. Then I realized shortly thereafter that um, there was never going to be a community in Lower Manhattan. And at the same time, there were no Islamic schools to put my kids in. Well, where am I going to put my kids? There's no Muslim institutions here. I can't live here. Okay. And I looked around in Queens, Brooklyn. I didn't want to live there. So eventually this masjid, which is uh, at that time had been become run by my friends, uh, New Brunswick Islamic Center, they had moved to this building. So I said, well, if you have someone, I can, you know, work here. And then they approved it. But I also had another thing, which was that I knew what masjid life is like. People come to the masjid when they're tired, right? And they unwind themselves or they drop their kids off. And I felt myself... I know that I'm going to get frustrated after a little bit. So I need to have a little brainchild project to work on 
that flows together with the masjid, not away from it or against it, but together with the masjid that I could release my own uh, passions and control over. Because to control your work, it's an impulse, it's a desire, right? It's, I think, a legitimate desire, right? And I felt that this is something that I want that I would say right away. And I did bring it up right away, and the masjid accepted it. And that's where Safina Saidi came in, which is the idea that there is a general programming of the masjid, but then there is something that is really, I would say, personal. A personal uh, desire to build something that I can work on and control day to day, but that flows alongside the mosque. I saw two institutions that I loved early on. One of them, the first one was Zaytuna Institute when it was still an institute. Um, and the second one was the London Central Mosque. The London Central Mosque was a humongous masjid, like huge. And it wasn't in a neighborhood, it was in the middle of a city area, sort of a downtown area. And it attracted so many people who would you know, be from different neighborhoods. So it wasn't your local mosque. It was it was more of a jamia masjid, jam, masjid jamia, which is the masjid that gathers everyone. And I loved it because it was just like a cross section of the Muslims of London. It was you never know what you're going to get there. It was really exciting to me. So I felt that a huge community center is a place that could potentially be really exciting. Like you walk into MBIC and it's always, I would say, sixty percent for me, seventy five percent, maybe for you, fifty percent is faces you know, 50% strangers. Which is a nice balance because you always see your friends, but you always see a stranger too. Like if you go to a place and you know everyone every single time, it gets boring. So you need something to spice it up a little bit. I need some action. So that's why I like this, uh, the community. Uh, New Jersey has a, not a lot of people in it. Connecticut was an utter and absolute bore. Right? It was a death trap. If you want to go to die somewhere, right? You know, go to Connecticut and you just die it's so slow it's so dead it's unbelievable uh and it's not dead it's slow in a beautiful way like you can go to kentucky but at least it's pretty right it's very beautiful the the beautiful skies beautiful weather you can go to tennessee and you're in the middle of nowhere but it's beautiful but you go to connecticut there's no beauty it's cloudy and it's utter misery new jersey in comparison it's like light and day so I became thankful about New Jersey uh, or for New Jersey after spending three and a half or four years in Connecticut. I became extremely thankful because when you go to London to New Jersey, it's a step down. But you went to London to Connecticut to New Jersey. And also I, went, I actually went from London to Tom's River, death trap, to, to central Jersey, which is life, Right. It was actually a great wisdom that I went straight to Tom's River because then Central Jersey looks like a blessing in comparison. Then I went to Connecticut, died, and then was able to come back to Jersey where I feel like, oh, thank God, there's population here. There's stuff going on. So that's the idea. Most of my day, Monday through Thursday, morning time is Safina Society work, production of content, and putting it out there and preparing for classes. Uh... All the Sufian Society classes are inside of MBIC, so that's a dual benefit right there. And then there's MBIC programming throughout the week and the year. And then Sunday is the big day where we have the kids in the morning, halakha, and then the adults at night.
so th that's basically the schedule. That's how it works. And um, uh, we have a good partnership between MBIC and Safina Society that I think could possibly be a model for others. You know, because if you just had Safina Society, it's just your own crowd, right? There's no stranger. I need a stranger. I need strangers to come in because they actually give me a cross section of what the actual community looks like. It's a way to reach out to people, right, that are strangers. And you stand in the khutbah and you don't know half the people. It's really good. You get to reach out to them. And uh, I think it's, uh, alhamdulillah, a decent balance. And what about the podcast? I mean, what was the goal? So the podcast, I had, I had thought about getting into the arena of the podcasting for a while. Didn't know how to do it. Wasn't really great at technology at the time. Uh, I had a friend give it a shot. That's why people, when they go to Safina Society Podcast, they'll see two podcasts. We we still can't get rid of that other one. I don't know how. I mean, uh, someone put it up, forgot a password, and it's up there. It says the Safina Society Podcast, right? But we, I don't know, we can't get it down, right? So it that went down. And I persisted to have the desire. And I can't remember whose idea it was. I think it was Moeen's idea. It was either my idea or his idea to just sit down and talk, right? And the first one we did was in my office with a mic similar to this one. And we just talked, right? And it was okay. It was fine. And then uh, we did a second one, a third one. And then he said, you know what? We need a content um, uh, curator. And that turned out to be Alex, right? So it was me, Alex, and... Uh, Maureen. Now, Maureen was working with a guy named Sad. Sad became the fourth guy. And then we would just go to Maureen's house every Monday when he used to live around the corner from me. Unfortunately, he moved like an hour away. But uh, he used to live around the corner. We'd go and I would have a couple ideas of the week and we would just talk. And I, uh, my nature is not formal. like, But in terms of like talking, you can't just be in a uh, give a lecture. You're going you know, to put people to sleep. Like there is interest. You have a soul that needs to be moved, right? And he's like, you need to move. So I never liked just sort of a bland and let's make sure that every word has to be filtered through. Uh, let's see who's going to be upset. I also, you know, don't like to have a lot of connections. You have a lot of connections. You have to make sure you don't offend everyone, right? Uh, we can't talk like this. We can't do this. It's not going to work. This is going to become a snooze fest. So it needs to be uh, free from all this uh, takalluf, which is like takalluf means you got to go through so many loops and hoops. So I never liked that. And I think that reflected decently on the podcast. Um, I would record and I wouldn't look at it again. I never listened to them. Uh, unless I have the job of editing them, which sometimes I do, if the editor can't do it themselves. Never listen to them. Never look at the feedback or the comments, right? And the team does that. And I do that on purpose because I don't want to care about those details. I want to care about the content that's being put forth. Last question. Mm -hmm. um, so something um, I think I personally and a lot of Christians admire about you is you know, you don't filter yourself. You're very to the point, um, mm -hmm. and you speak the truth, whether uh, it's an ugly truth or just you know whatever it is. Um, so, how do you, I guess, where did that courage come from? And can you do you have some advice for others on kind of how to 
facilitate that courage. Well, it was um, not just something from myself. It was something that my dad lived this way too. And I grew up on that, right? He also had very few connections. Like he didn't have hoops that he would have to think about every time he would talk. And he was generally just genuine. People are going to love it or hate it, right? Genuine doesn't mean that every position is correct or thought out. But it's the core of the matter, right? That what you see is what you get. And when he was like that, he was attracted to people like that. And so I'm surrounded with people who are like that, right? If he was a fake and a Hillary Clinton type and one of these people whose words have to be put through a transcript and studied by lawyers, maybe I would have turned out to be a fake like that too, right? But he couldn't stomach it. So when you're in an area environment where that nonsense is never let into the house, except that it's called out as nonsense, right? <laughs> then you get a, you, you can't, you're, you become that. And you, you can't be, change, right? You can't change. So uh, you can't ever accept the BS anymore. It's just something that you won't accept. So that's really where it's from. And uh, I felt that in order, I felt as well that the best soundest sleep you can get is when you're like that, right? And when you can sleep soundly every evening, this is a sign that your conscience is on the right track, right? Even if you made a mistake, but at least your heart is clean in the sense that you're not duplicitous. And when I say duplicitous, I mean thinking one thing about an idea, but not saying it because of you're afraid of something. Well, if you're afraid, is there a reason to be afraid? Is it false? Is it driven by your personal intention, right? That you can't defend? There's got to be a reason. So I like to, uh, to, to, to have that feeling of, um, I feel like I got what's in my chest. I got it out. Now the question becomes from the reaction. You might have something in your chest that is actually incorrect. You might want something uh, that's not right. The reaction will inform you of that. The reaction of people will inform you that you're actually personally angry as opposed to having a reason to be upset about something. All right. So you have to face that. And some and it takes that's the hardest pill to swallow when you realize, oh, my gosh, the reaction to this comment reveals to me that I'm actually my motive was wrong. Right. I was personally offended as opposed to having a real reason to be offended. So you have to check that. You got to fix it. Number two, sometimes your ex your, the reaction of people may reflect that your expression was wrong or that you didn't gather all the evidence. And number three, your mode of expression. So I used to generalize a lot more. My mode of expression was, you know, all these liberals. But there are some liberals who don't intend what you, we think they intend. And we have to make sure that that's clear because you're run-of-the-mill person who would label themselves as a liberal, okay? The type of people that you would run into in a Starbucks or a coffee shop. Uh, they, uh, my dad actually boycotts Starbucks. They actually uh, are types of people who are liberal to them means don't force yourself on others. Let everyone do their thing, right? In that respect, I'm also similar to that, right? But 
I used to always use the term liberal as meaning people who are undermining your motivation in the religion. That they want your motivation in religion to be choice rather than submission to Allah. Right? I was watching the other day an interview with Lindsay Lohan. She came out with hijab. And Britain Today, it, the host was, uh, there was a hostess and there was Piers Morgan. This guy has a million jobs. You notice this? He's like changing jobs every year. This guy never can keep a job. He's everywhere, but he's nowhere. So this guy, he asked her a question. You were seen wearing hijab coming out of the plane in England, from Turkey to England, or Turkey to America. And the, and she said, yeah, I mean, I wonder why people get so upset about that. The earlier stars would wear big glasses and they would wear scarves, Hollywood stars, when they would travel so that they wouldn't be known. And the lady was like, yeah, but that's a personal choice. It seems like this was a religious choice, as if it's a crime to have a religious choice. So the liberals will, they will allow you to do everything in your religion if you say it's a personal choice. If you're saying this is my way of worshiping my nefs as opposed to obeying my Lord, who I believe in, who is unseen that I believe in, right? So in that respect, uh, that was a lesson that I learned early on that you can't generalize too much. You gotta give credit where credit is due, okay? You have to make sure that your intention isn't personal. And if I hadn't talked, I would have never learned those lessons. If I had bottled it up, right, and been timid about talking, or been uh, afraid of the backlash of some comments, you would never learn, right? You'd never learn. So that's learning from experience. And in this field, you can ask anyone. There aren't mentors guiding you every day. Like the masjid doesn't have a senior teach scholar in residence that could show me that, hey, in 1970, I was in your place and I made this mistake, right? Now learn from me. We don't have these mentors. We're learning this on our own, right? Every, all, all, most of these people on the field don't have mentors. The next generation will have mentors. So they should be real professionals. It doesn't mean they have to be boring. But it means they won't make the stupid, silly mistakes that we might have made. I think that Muslims have to have courage. Because to have courage and do your thing and have toughness, you don't need heroes. Having courage doesn't mean be a hero. Doesn't mean being a super achiever. It means in your life, what do you believe? Insist on it. That's it. Whether you're in your job, whatever your job is, what is your job anyway? I'm studying urban planning. Urban planning. Okay. So whatever it is in a person's life, family, whatever, if you believe in something, stand firm by it, right? Whatever blowback is going to come is going to award you with one or two gifts, either in error that you had in your thought, or it will strengthen you. And if you can't handle it, then you learn the sad news that you were weak. And if you're weak, weakness in this respect does not mean personally weak. Weakness in this respect means a lack of trust in Allah Ta'ala. Now, some people are strong by themselves. Allah created them. They could care less what everyone thinks. That's one thing. However, this can be learned in the sense that trust in Allah. So if I don't trust in myself and I don't have this self-confidence, I study, 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 make sure I come to the best possible decision, right? Rationally speaking, in terms of knowledge, in whatever field, then I put it out and I trust in Allah. 
And if you notice, people who go out on a limb on something, it's because they have certainty. They have certainty of that thing, right? So be it in any field or discipline, the people who have knowledge, like really grounded in knowledge, they're strong because they see this as a fact. Unshakable argument. Put it forth and then trust in Allah after that. So it's knowledge, certainty, get certain knowledge, and then trust in Allah are the formula for people to be able to stand up for themselves. And if we can get a generation of Muslims coming in the whole world, because the whole world's one community now. There's no longer New Jersey, American. No, we're all one, right? The Muslims are getting battered around left and right, right? Khutbah used to be du'a for Philistine. That was it. Now it's Yemen, Kashmir, India, Rohingya, uh, China, Uyghurs, Syrians, Palestinians. The list keeps growing. There's seven nations right now where Muslims are sort of being singled out or that they have such calamities that, you know, they can't overcome. Uh, this list will probably be by 10 by the end of the decade. Easy. Maybe 15. We ask Allah, Afiyah and Salama. What is the Muslim going to learn from this? What, do we, what is our ummah? How are we going to react? Are you going to die? Or are you going to react? Or are you going to change? We have to have a change. We need to believe what we believe and stand up for it. Right? In the West... We should add the Western Muslims because we're not having a genocide of our bodies. We're having a genocide of our beliefs, right? When the liberals come in and convince you, you do your religion because it's your personal choice. Not because of obedience to Allah and His Messenger, but it's your personal choice. The next step is in five years, what if your personal choice changes? So today you say, hijab is my personal choice, right? Eating halal is my personal choice. Well, if you, got, if you drank that Kool-Aid in five years, what if your personal choice is something completely different, right? Are you going to just follow it? So they have successfully got you to take yourself off the track. They fed you a different GPS system and a different uh, intention. And if your intention is now your own self, right? And, and, and basically, quote-unquote, being true to myself, which is a nonsense statement, uh, means nothing, okay? Being true to myself, how is that a way to make moral decisions, right? Uh, so if you swallow that pill in the future, true, trueness to yourself is going to be something totally different, right? So in the West, we have an epistemicide, which is the genocide of our epistemology, which is our sources of certainty. So the source of certainty goes from the book and the sunnah to my own self and my own thoughts, and my ideas, and my identity, and my blah, blah, blah. And once that happens, then you're going to see a massive wave of riddah. So I think, honestly, the West, Western Muslims are suffering a different type of calamity, you know, than the Eastern countries. I don't see Syrians apostating. They lose their homes and their families, right? But I don't see mass apostasy. I do see it, mass heresy and apostasy, Maybe not mass, but it's portrayed that it's huge online. They see it happening. And and maybe it is mass because when I do the youth group, a lot of kids, unfortunately, come in very dark-faced. Meaning that you could see a cloud of no belief, no iman, no light in their faces from hours and hours compiled of pornography, Right? 
of music that is not even like you can pass it off like classical music he's studying to it not that satanic types of music right to whatever else they're doing to no salah no quran no dhikr you got pious people who have sins right but at least he's coming to the masjid wash it out at the end of the day and make tawbah but some of the youth unfortunately a lot of the youth are on that track of hours upon hours of sludge in their hearts with no response, no dhikr, no immediate tawbah. Some people don't even know how to make tawbah. And you have jahl, like actual genuine ignorance. I recently had the other day a young man did not know that you're obligated to pray on time. He knew that you couldn't pray before the time, but he thought, genuinely speaking, and we're talking about a 17-year-old kid, genuinely speaking, that you could just pray all of them at night that you don't have to pray on time. So we have jahl. We have a lot of issues. And we need a lot more people to engage with strangers, to try to talk to people, talk to anyone, and try to pass on a benefit. Sorry, I know I said that was the last question, but I have one more. Mm -hmm. uh, you've talked about doing thicker with the youth group, but we also do it every two weeks. Yeah. Um, what does that do for a community, young and old? Oh, thicker is so important. Uh, I know that some people, they don't like the group thicker. And they have their evidences. But we're going to follow Imam and Nawi's evidence. And that's actually masjid policy. The masjid actually has a policy for that group that could be established in the mosque. Right? Uh, it's not even something that's even, you know, just to, to, it's a policy. And uh, purification of the heart is going to be by dhikrullah. So if people can get exposed to that on a regular basis over the years that dhikr starts to happen in their homes. That dhikr starts to happen while they're in the car. The feeling, the good feeling that a person receives when they're making dhikr is a natural feeling of nur entering their heart. They leave the masjid, they discover over time that, hey, I can be in the car by myself or at home by myself, pick up my beads and do dhikr myself. I don't need to wait until next Friday, right? I haven't gotten the youth class to do adhkar yet because it's not easy, right? They just look at you. And I haven't yet cracked that, but I'm gonna. I'm persisting. And I need to get the youth to do the krillah. They need to do, they just look at you. Some of them are into it. If their parents are into it, they're into it. Right and 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 it really goes to show the homeschooled and the Muslim school kids. This stuff, it flows easily with them, right? It flows easily with them, and the parents who do this, even if their kids go to public school, but their parents are conscious that their kids are in the masjid doing dhikrullah, then it's fine with them too. But if the parents aren't on the wavelength, and the school isn't on the wavelength, then we have more trouble with it. So. You go to any Muslim school, they're going to be reciting Quran and praying, right? At the very least. Uh, you have a home where the kids, they bring their kids for dhikr, uh, they got that. But when it's uh, parents aren't on the wavelength, they don't do dhikr in their house, and the kid goes to public school, he doesn't know what you're doing. He's looking at you like, what the heck is going on? And we have to break that. We've got to break it. So I haven't had success at it for three years. But... What am I going to do? Stop? Maybe it'll crack the code in the fourth year. Try something different. Every year, try something different. Uh, 
So that's the idea of pers- being persistent. And um, that dhikr will erase sagair. It erases minor sins. It fills the heart with, with, with uh, the light of Allah. It surrounds a person with angels. It is the medicine. It's the source. The intellect serves the heart. The tongue, actually I should go the opposite way. The society is affected by the individual's action. The individual's action is a manifestation of his, his words. Like his words first, then action second. His words are dictated to him by his intellect. right? And his intellect, the direction of his intellect is dictated to him by his heart. So at the root of society is the heart. Right at the root of everything is the heart. Doesn't mean to say you can never fix things in reverse. You can, you can revi- fix things in reverse. Uh, but by and large, the what happens in the world is a reflection of the hearts of individuals. So how are we going to change things? One individual at a time. Whatever we can do. Right. Uh, if you remember the frog of uh, Prophet Ibrahim's time, that a frog was going to put out the fire of Ibrahim that Nimrod lit for Prophet Ibrahim alayhisalam. And Allah Ta'ala asked the frog, what are you doing? And the frog said, I'm going to spit water on the fire of Ibrahim. And Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala asked him, do you think that small amount of water will put out the fire? The frog said, no, and I'm certain that it won't put out the fire, but it's what I can do. What else am I going to do? What's the alternative? Watching? Just watching the thing burn down? Or take action? Your action might lead to a second person's action, which might lead to a third, to a fourth, to a fifth. And then all of a sudden you have a domino effect and it may happen way after your death. So you have nothing but gain when you act and you have nothing but loss when you're inactive. So dhikrullah in a a city and a town, in a masjid and a family is uh, you can't put a dollar amount to it. You can't put a value to it. Welcome. My pleasure. Anytime. Allah. Ya man sumi qabili